Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. If it is the case that economics is, feels that it has to describe the meaning of life, are we better off for that? Is, is, is it the case that life should be arranged as an endless cost-benefit trade-off? I don't think it is. So just a, a final example, if I talked about online dating in the book, the argument is that through the various interfaces and databases and all of these other things that, that we encounter when we go online dating, we completely transform the formation of a relationship. So it's no longer, you know, eyes across a crowded room or whatever it may be. If that, if that happened, I don't know. What it is, is a very economic, rational, logical picking up of one character trait, another character trait, you know, trading off, deciding what's best for us and all of this sort of thing. But does it make us any happier? Does it make us better off? Does it um, set relationships on a, on a better footing? I don't know for sure, but I really don't believe that it does. And I think that if economics is going to produce these kind of results, and if we can't stop it, then we should at least keep it out of harm's way. In 1776, the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, wrote that every man lives by exchanging. But do economists know what they're talking about? Is everything for sale? And have we become obsessed with measurement and price? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to figure out what isn't for sale and whether economics can explain everything. Philip Roscoe talks money, money and more money in A Richer Life, how economics can change the way we think and feel. And Helen Small selects Thackeray's classic novel, Vanity Fair, as the funniest novel of the Victorian age. But first, do we need to put economics back in its place? You know you've got a worthwhile economics book in your hand when it presents the reader with a manifesto for a richer life investigates complex social relationships and courageously argues we are all economists now. Philip Roscoe's A Richer Life, How Economics Can Change the Way We Think and Feel hits the mark and is very much where economics meets philosophy with a sneaky bit of theology also. Well, I had a very stimulating chat with Philip over the weekend. I asked him, can economics explain everything? Well, it would like to think that it does. I mean, of course, I, I disagree. But uh, increasingly over the, the 20th century, it set itself up as, uh, as a mechanism for, for explaining and plumbing the depths of human nature. And the problem is in doing so, it reduces the way we think about things to a very narrow calculus of costs and benefits. So, I mean, I suppose... Part of the motivation for writing this book was trying to say, no, look, it doesn't. It doesn't explain everything. We don't think like that. And, and if we start to assume that we do, if we start to construct social arrangements on that basis, then we're really in trouble. Well, it's clearly not a perfect science, but maybe our expectations of what economists can deliver or predict is maybe a bit too high. 
Yes, I also think that's the case. But I think as well that economics is culpable in that. And I think that it has increasingly... And these, these breathless books like Freakonomics that are on the shelf saying, you know, we can explain everything, we can do everything, we can fix everything. And then we have the behavioral economists who say, no, we understand how people think and we can help you arrange society better. So I think it is culpable in that, certainly. And if you look, if you look at the famous sort of nudge units, the nudge thinking, all of this kind of stuff, their biggest success, so far as I can see, is the little fly in gentlemen's urinals that are supposed to improve aim. So there's a real disconnect between what these discipline says it can do and what it's actually seemed to manage. Now, Philip, as I was leafing through a richer life, it struck me that in some way we've become completely obsessed with price. How we measure everything, how we look at evaluation metrics based on how we're almost living in some ways. And I think that's pretty much the central argument that you're pitching in this book. Yes, we are. And and why, why does that matter? And I think, again... One of the reasons I began to, to work on this book is I felt that things, things that mattered to me, you know, um, being an academic, being a, a scholar, you know, having a, a good relationship, all of these kind of things are slowly being corroded and eaten away by this fixation on, on measurement and price. And that takes us right to the, the heart of the problem of, of economics as a science, because when we think about a science, you know, we think about people in, in white coats testing things and, and, and seeing how things work, but we don't ever really accept that that process changes what it is that is being tested or, or under investigation. Whereas clearly, in the case of economics, as soon as you bring in metrics, measurements, and, and you start to price things and, and test them out in different kinds of ways, then you change what it is that you're examining. So the universities say, and part of the part of the process, of course, is that very big ideas get translated into little ideas and organisational structures and, and that kind of thing. So we have an idea all of a sudden that the main beneficiary of a university education is the student, and therefore the student should be expected to pay for this education. And therefore, the student is a consumer. So the student has to be able to decide which education is better than, you know, one is better than another, one is therefore worth more money, more effort, or whatever than the other. And all of this kind of thing. And all of a sudden, we're going to have a market forming in, in education where everything is priced and everything is, is ranked and categorized. But that's somehow not going to change the way that we actually teach or what we do in universities. And of course, it does. It does in so many different ways. It, it deflects money in institutions to things that are visible like buildings and away from things that are invisible like teaching. It changes the goals that lecturers, that academics are set or causes them to be measured in a particular way. It changes the way we think about our business of scholarship, doing work, discovering new knowledge and all of this kind of thing. And it changes the way the students act in the classroom, the way they choose courses, you know, the way they prepare for their exams. It completely reshapes the whole system and not for the better. So you see, one big idea is worked out in in lots and lots and lots of little ways in organizational places. And you see this over and over again. I think that's very, very damaging, very corrosive. And we're constantly economising in some different way in our private lives. Now, you bring up two very interesting themes. One is prostitution and the other is online dating. Can you talk me through your arguments on these and how we're looking at, we're bringing this kind of cost-benefit approach to these aspects of life? 
Yes, they they come from, or I come at them from different ways, if you like. I think in the case of prostitution, I'm really trying not to get tangled up in the moral arguments around prostitution because I'm not entirely sure it's even for me to arbitrate on those. But what I, what I will say is there's a, a strong discourse in contemporary economics where we're all all people are kind of productive machines, and this too speaks to the education example, if you like. The reason you pay for fees is that you, you beef up the horsepower of your intellectual capacity and you can get a better job that pays off later. So the idea is that wherever we have assets, wherever we have capital, we can borrow or spend or use that up and make ourselves a better person or generate more money or whatever it may be. So there's this very, very strong narrative in some areas of contemporary economic thinking that this is acceptable in any sort of bodily transaction. So we should be able to sell our kidneys, for example, if we want to go to university, you know, one kidney less, but a degree more, and we'd be better off in the long run. And in the case of prostitution, there's character who crops up, I think, in the second Freakonomics book. I think it's Super Freakonomics. She's called Ali, and uh, she's uh, described as an attractive, curvaceous, blonde woman who becomes a, an entrepreneur because she doesn't like working in a corporation. So she goes out and she sells her bodily assets, and, you know, she has a great time. And it's this sort of discourse of, of liberating freedom that this woman achieves through becoming a, a prostitute instead of a corporate wage slave. And all I wanted to say is that these kind of exchanges are subject to market discipline. So once you start to look at how the market for prostitution functions, you see that there are sites, you know, kind of review sites, for example, like TripAdvisor, um, only for, for men who buy sexual services. And all of a sudden, you see the women are caught up in trying to satisfy these sites, which reinforce a, a notion of sex for sale and consumer sovereignty and the men being able to do what they like and, you know, they're paying, so why shouldn't they get this and that all this kind of thing, which I find really, really unpleasant and very, very toxic. So it's not liberating. It involves a step into another set of market arrangements, which can be just as oppressing and unpleasant as a corporate existence, if not more so. So that was my thinking around uh, the character of Ali, who becomes, she's sort of a motif through the book, isn't she? She, she grows and enla enlarges, and she sort of becomes a bit of a metaphor for this notion that every bit of ourselves is somehow for, for sale and to be used productively. But I think, Philip, that Stephen Levitt was arguing in some way about agency and choice. And Ali, our happy prostitute, was taking action in her life and deciding where she wanted to pitch herself and to get a return on investment on that. So I'm just wondering, can we say there is any relationship between theology and economics? Or is that me totally losing the run of myself? No, I, I think we can. I think there's a, a very strong intellectual history that you can trace through from the Enlightenment, from Adam Smith, from the sense of the invisible hand, which is, a, if not theological, certainly theologically inspired concept. And the market seems to step into that breach. And we have, in a secular society, the market with almost a theological status, and people look to it and affirm it and what have you. And, and you're right, there's this, this point about autonomy. Autonomy, as you know, is, a, is an extremely important virtue for contemporary philosophy. But at what cost and at what price does one deploy or, or, or use autonomy? So in the case of arguments about the sale of transplant organs, for example, which I don't talk about so much in the book, you know, we know empirically 
that people who sell their organs have a tremendously bad time. I think we also know it empirically that a lot of women who sell sexual services have a tremendously bad time, although some of them don't. So we have to be able to take decisions based on more than just the notion of autonomy and cost-benefit and so forth. And that's an idea that comes out throughout the book. Now, you make a very profound point, which I might compliment you on, Philip. You say there is no metric for human dignity and we should not strive for one economics affects us as persons. I found that powerful now, I have to say. Thank you. Can you talk me through your argument? I think in the context of care, particularly, that comes up. Again, we see um, it's a classic problem in in the management of bureaucratic organisations is that various kinds of metrics and accountabilities and what have you are brought into place. And then managers see their job primarily as meeting those metrics. And the more metrics we have, the more managers are are focused on those, and it takes away our attention from the things that really matter. So in the case of care, for example, particularly caring for the elderly or or for the ill, you know, dignity, um, respect, and these kind of things are of absolute paramount importance. And they're often chased out by metrics. And then, of course, you get a tremendous failure or a disaster in in a, a particular hospital, whatever it may be. There's an investigation and the cry goes out, oh, we need some more metrics. No, we don't. This is exactly what we don't need. What we need is space. What we need is space for managers who are trained in the profession, you know, doctors or carers or whatever it may be, to deploy the the ethics that they recognize within that profession and to treat their patients with appropriate dignity, you know, I might even say love, certainly care. And we can't model that. That's the point. We can't get in a, a, you know, a barometer for dignity. We just have to rely upon the expertise and the sort of craft knowledge of those people who are practising. And Philip, you quote the great Roger Scruton who says economists don't know what they're talking about. I'd say that went down like a lead balloon and then you following it up in your book made things slightly more difficult. What you say to those who say that economists do know what they're talking about and the rest of us are just walking in wonderland? Well, the economists know what they're talking about within a very discrete field, which is economics. And the problem is when that expertise, if you like, is expected to do a whole load of other things that it can't. So, you know, economists know about building markets, for example, and I've got a lot of time for that. They know that in the same way that engineers know about building bridges. You know, we need engineers who who understand what they're doing. And, And there's lots of things that economics can help us with. So, for example, you drive around the countryside now and there's all these windmills appearing, solar panels on everybody's houses and all the rest of it. Arranging the outputs from those into some kind of national grid is a tremendously difficult computational problem and it's really an economic problem and we need skilled economists who know what they're doing to help us navigate those kind of issues but the point is we've already decided what the purpose is what the goods if you like what what the virtues that we want out of this arrangement are would in this case to use less coal or generate less carbon dioxide and then it's in a case of implementation and there i think there's a lot to be offered but the problem is that that we seem to have gotten a situation where we accept that economics knows more than this, that it understands, you know, what, what life's about. As you said at the very beginning, it understands what matters, what matters being cost efficiency or, or trade-offs of various kind prices and so forth. Um, and that gets us into all kinds of trouble. Do you think there is a lack of empathy and altruism in the world, Philip? 
Yes and, and no. I mean, it's one of those things that grows with practice, doesn't it? I mean, this is Michael Sandel's great argument, is that if you organize the world in such a way that altruism isn't required, then it, it will atrophy and people won't know how to deploy it when they need it. So in, in the middle of the 20th century, Dennis Robertson, a very eminent British economist, gave a lecture and he said, what does the economist economize? And he answered, he economizes on love, it means civil virtue. He says, it's the job of economics is to arrange incentives for every area of life so people don't have to care um, and they'll just be sort of persuaded to do things. And then when we need, this is the kicker, when we need love, when we need civic virtue, there'll be plenty left. It won't all be used up. Michael Sandel says quite the reverse. He says, look, we've got to keep practicing this stuff because if we don't practice it, then we, uh, we won't have any left when we need it. So in the latter part of the book, I talk a little bit about things like um, local trading schemes and so forth. And I think this is exactly the point of them is that they stimulate social interaction. They get people back into trade. They get kind of altruism and promises and all these sort of things going and practicing. And yeah, after a while, they, they fade away. And then people have new sets of social relationships they can rely on. They no longer need the market. So the answer is, yes, there is a shortage of altruism, and it's partly economics fault and we should be able to do something about it. Well what about the living wage though and how we look as societies and how business leaders and governments look at how we control wages. Surely we need to reframe what we're doing and maybe rethink what our moral obligations are as employers and employees and as business leaders and as politicians because we have huge inequalities in the world and we have some very obvious inequalities in how the wages people are being offered in everyday jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. I don't know what, what the answer is, but I think I, I agree with the notion that we need to reframe this completely. I mean, the low wage tax avoidance, all of these kind of ideas that we associate with big global firms comes from a very particular, again, mid-20th century, again, very economic understanding of the way that firms work and their obligations, who they're owned by and what have you. So the idea is they're owned by shareholders and all other rights are subject to those and shareholders have good profits. And you know all of this. The question is, how do we reorganize that? And, and, and I don't know, it's an enormous project, but you're right. We somehow have to be able to rethink a, a social contract where firms, you know, contribute meaningfully to society. And, and we must remember that firms owe their existence to society. They're supported by legal contracts. You know, they, their trucks drive on the roads that society pays for. They use citizens who've been educated by society and so forth. So it's, this notion that they're above nation states floating around what I view is crazy. But I don't think we've figured out exactly yet how to, how to redo that. Now, can I ask you, what do you mean when you say we need to remake economic exchange? That's a very big, bold statement. Sounds very visionary, almost political, Philip. I just wasn't quite clear on what you meant by all of that. <laughs> I think it's, it's a big claim, isn't it? I like the idea of a trade that is embedded in the social relationship. I mean, I think this is the kind of pure Adam Smith type trade as well, going back uh, to 300 years to when the economy looked a very different kind of place. So trading is in and of itself a social activity. It produces, you know, trust and, and promises, obligations and all of this kind of thing. But contemporary economic arrangements 
seem to go against that grain. They seem to abstract. They seem to push people away. So there's a classic example of a strawberry market in France where a keen young administrator does away with the old-fashioned traditional market and replaces it with some kind of you know, concrete, modern, economic-style market with closed bids and closed offers and so forth. Completely excludes the social. And in a sense, I think that's what happens in supermarkets. What happens is certainly when we shop online, all these kind of things that we do for modern convenience. And economic exchange has, has worked hard over the last few decades to purge all kinds of social relationships and social claims. Now, we just have, you know, we have the, the label under the fluorescent lights in the supermarket. And it seems to me that that, that impoverishes us. And it also, um, it renders us, I think, incapable of some kinds of collective action that increasingly we need to be able to think about in order to deal with some of the problems that we have at the moment, such as inequality and, and so forth, firms, as, as we've spoken about. So, yeah, I think we need to explore and redevelop the kind of social contract that we have around economics and economic exchange. And, and that's a huge, huge big deal. And I don't quite know how in the end that will end up. Now, Philip, I was amused um, reading through the book with Borges, the Argentinian writer. You mm-hmm. use a fable of his in the book. Can you tell me why you decided to do this? Well, I, I, I sometimes think that uh, Borges just, you know, wrote parables to be picked up by other people, oddly enough. I'm not sure if I like him as a writer, but his parables seem to seem to fit in so many settings where one wants to explain something. And in this case, this lovely idea of a world that's completely fictional, completely made up. And because it's made up, it makes sense. And it's got a logical organization to it. And eventually it spills over into the real world, doesn't it? You know, the, it's discovered, first of all, in a few books. And then um, in a, it, a couple of artifacts appear. And, and then eventually the, the narrator finds himself surrounded. You know, he, he says it's, it's history is taught in schools and its language is taught and that sort of thing. Because it makes sense. It makes such, such glorious logical sense that it's so much easier to understand than the complicated mess of the world around us. And... At the end of it, if I remember correctly, he says, what do I care? It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm here sitting on my balcony. I'm an old man. I'm engaged in some completely pointless act of scholarship to translation to keep me out of trouble. So that's really the question. You know, we have this Borgesian sort of world where something that we've, we've made up, the economic has spilled over into our world and completely transformed it. What do we do? Are we going to sit on the terrace, you know, grow old, watch it go past, or are we going to do something and try and change some of these back to how they might otherwise have been? That's why I like that fable. Now, when I got to the end of your book on page 250, I had to laugh. You end on a very controversial and very gratifying note, I might add. You say, let's put economics back in its place. Let's make it work for us. Failing that, let's keep it in the asylum where it can do no harm. Interesting. Can you tease that out for me? Yeah, I, I pinched that, I'm afraid. I pinched it from uh, Roger Scruton again. And his, his line is something like, the university is the, uh, is the asylum. You know, it's all right, these people doing their sums, you know, but let's, if they are going to decide they understand how the world works and what the meaning of life is and all of these kind of things, well, let them do it. But, um, you know, let's, let's keep them in the asylum indeed. Well, if it is the case that economics is, feels that it has to describe the meaning of life, 
are we better off for that? Is, is, is it the case that life should be arranged as an endless cost-benefit trade-off? I don't think it is. So just a, a final example to finish off. I talked about online dating in the book, and, and um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. The argument is that through the various interfaces and databases and all of these other things that, that we encounter when we go online dating, we completely transform the formation of a relationship. So it's no longer, you know, eyes across a crowded room or whatever it may be. If that, if that happened, I don't know. What it is, is a very economic, rational, logical picking up of one character trait, another character trait, you know, trading off, deciding what's best for us and all of this sort of thing. It's backed by a whole load of social scientific knowledge and economic investigation, which I talk about in more detail in the book. But does it make us any happier? Does it make us better off? Does it um, set relationships on? on a better footing. I don't know for sure, but I really don't believe that it does. And I think that if economics is going to produce these kind of results, and if we can't stop it, then we should at least keep it out of harm's way. And that's really what I meant by keeping it in the asylum. And that was Dr. Philip Roscoe. A Richer Life, How Economics Can Change the Way We Think and Feel is published by Penguin Books and retails for about 12 euros in paperback. Talking Books on Newsalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Ah, Vanitas, Vanitatum. Which of us is happy in this world? Which of us has his desire? Or having it is satisfied? The closing words of William Makepeace Thackeray from his masterpiece, Vanity Fair. Dr. Helen Small is a professor of English literature at the University of Oxford and she has edited the Oxford World Classic series on writers such as George Eliot, Emily Bronte and Anthony Trollope. Well, Helen's latest venture is William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair, arguably one of the greatest novels of the Victorian age. Vanity Fair is set during the Napoleonic Wars and is a biting satire following the resourceful, upwardly mobile and doggedly determined Becky Sharp as she cuts us way through Regency society. Well, when I caught up with Helen, I cut to the chase and asked her, is Vanity Fair the greatest novel of the Victorian age? Or does George Eliot, Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, for that matter, deserve that mantle? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's always difficult to rank. In the end, these are matters of personal taste, aren't they? But he's absolutely up there with all those people that you've mentioned. I suppose the thing that makes him a different case from Dickens or George Eliot is that he's not as consistent. I think even Thackeray's most devoted fans don't think that some of the minor novels really would rank alongside a minor Dickens novel. But Vanity Fair is just the funniest, most worldly, lively, satiric, you know, appetizing novel still. It has a wonderful modernity about it. And I would make a case for it being so great. Victorian novel if you do want to have that kind of you know balloon debate. But despite the fact that he lampoons everyone in sight, it also is a very bleak book in ways because he takes quite a severe view of the human condition and the lengths people will go to whether it's advance themselves or to secure the positions that they want in life. So it's very dirty in parts. 
That's right. It is dirty. It's um, it has a very low opinion of human beings, and where you know a few people emerge is better than others. It's against a background of expecting really very little of your average man or woman. That's what bothered his first readers. Even those people, you know, nearly all of them just loved it. Thought it was so funny, so clever, so stylish. But even they were bothered by the implicit morality. There's no expectation that if you give people the benefit of the doubt, it will come right, or you know they will respond well. There's a kind of that you face the basic neediness and self-interest of human beings. And if you work on that basis, you might just get away without having the wool pulled or you know, being the object of um, some stupidity of uh, failure to recognise them. And that cuts across all the social situations in the book, whether it's to do with the military, whether it's to do with family relationships, inheritance, work, everything. It's that sinister edge, isn't it? Yeah, it's pervasive. Um, I mean, when you say sinister, you're right, but there's also there's a kind of pathos underneath it, a sort of a deep longing that it could be otherwise. So even though Becky Sharp, this famous you know, central character, the protagonist of the novel, she's a terrible mother. She's utterly self-interested. She's always on the make. And the big question of the novel is just how far does she go with Lord Stane? Does she prostitute herself, in effect? There's uh, a crucial, very dramatic scene in the novel, brilliantly subtle on Thackeray's part, where you're really not quite sure how harsh you should judge her all the appearances are against her so there's certainly a lack of prudence I mean what kind of woman would allow herself to be caught with Lord Stane hanging over her shoulder kissing her hand and clearly as ostensibly on the point of, of something much more than that but you look at her and everything about the way it's written insists that you say to yourself well do we know does her husband rightly know the thing that he in in fact leaves her for is not adultery it's the fact that he realizes she's taken money from lord stain and she's not shared it with him at a point when he was desperately in need of money so in a funny way the novel ranks financial infidelity over marital infidelity um but it leaves you thinking just how sure can i be of my ground you know in judging this woman it's there's nothing like it in Dickens, nothing like it in George Eliot, a kind of prod towards liberalism or openness of mind at exactly the point where you think you ought to be most justified in coming down hard on her. But Helen, there's also an energy and a pace to the novel in how Becky goes about manipulating everyone around her and how she seduces and how she plays with people and plays with people's vanities. And that pace It's very engaging as a reader because you adore her in ways because she's so entertaining, but she's so appalling as well. She's really the key to the novel's magic, isn't she? She is, absolutely. Um, one of the things about the novel is that for much of it, really until that point with Lord Stane, she is there as a kind of avatar of Thackeray himself. So the two of them are playing a kind of double game where he uses her as a mimic. Um, he uses her as a kind of extension of his own voice. And she's there just causing trouble, taking the mick out of everyone she meets. She's got a fabulously flexible voice, completely disrespectful. And it's about meritocracy, really. It's about how far can a woman go in a deeply inegalitarian society to use her wit and her wiles and her, not so much, she has beauty, but but much more than that, a kind of really attractive vivacity to make her way up. And the point at which she oversteps the mark is really a point of misjudgment. She just, she doesn't get that Lord Stane is a political survivor and just being pretty and wily and flexible is not enough. This is someone who's very well schooled in the world and she gets him wrong. But until that point, the novel's completely in tune with her and there's a kind of odd moment at which it separates itself out from her and she starts to slide down the social scale again. And you watch her with a kind of much more distanced respect for how she's trying to kind of grub along in a much less satisfactory position with a tattered reputation. Reading through the book, you change your views of Becky a number of times, or certainly I did, in terms of 
I warmed to certain aspects of her. I saw her as a survivor. I see her as a survivor, but also as a very grotesque character. So there's lots of switching going on there, moral switching, isn't there? As a reader, how you engage with the book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, I came back to editing it having not had a chance to reread it for a few years. So I teach it every year. So, you know, there are bits you remember very well because you tend to go back to them in the course of a class or a supervision. But one of the bits I'd forgotten is that fabulous scene when she's really down at heel and she's trying to just get along in Germany, um, making her way. You're not quite sure how. And she's in a really crummy boarding house. And Joss Sedley, the fat brother of Amelia, the boring, insipid heroine, who's always had an appetite for her, comes up to see her riskily at the top of her. And what you get is this fantastic scene where she's shoving the evidence of her appallingly, you know, cheap meal under the bedclothes and trying not to sit on the knife and fork and plate while trying to charm him and recreate some of the glamour that is really well behind it. Because by then she's seedy, she's losing her look, she's, you know, seems to be on the verge of alcoholism. But boy, does she seize this opportunity that's come her way in this man of little judgment and much appetite. Very funny scene. But she's great fun and I would imagine that her type is great fun for the weekend you just wouldn't want her as Amelia had as her, your best friend because there's no boundaries there sure there's not like no no, no boundaries at all I, I think the thing that killed her for so many of, uh, of Thackeray's first readers but it's still problematic now she's an appalling mother just terrible she really cannot stand this you know actually very um, sweet and funny and, and appealing little boy that she's had with her husband Warden Crawley and just I suppose I suppose he's just an obstacle really you know he's going to get in the way of her ability to charm her way through society and she's a hard and a coldness about her that that is interesting on Thackeray's part. It's a kind of risk with your willingness to go along with her and keep admiring her. So it's very mobile. And that mobility you're talking about in relation to her and what we think of her, whether we sympathize or not, it's there every level in the style. It's the most fabulously flexible style, which is why I think it seems so modern. It can go from very serious, elevated to hilariously demotic. He's got a brilliant way of dropping a sentence. So just when you think he's sustaining big moral seriousness, he just drops you in it with a vulgarity that's very funny. Now, can I ask you, do you think it's fair to, well, I suppose I'm not criticise would be the wrong word to use, but I would find Thackeray's style a bit intrusive at times in how he narrates in terms of how he tells a story. Like he butts in at times and he tries to do your thinking for you in certain ways or he sets different things up. Do you think some readers would find that frustrating? I'd be surprised if readers found it frustrating in the way that some readers will find George Eliot, for example, frustrating because he doesn't come in a kind of sustained moral voice and tell you this is the nature of the problem, this is how we should respond. What he does is set you up and he's constantly setting you up as a different kind of reader and none of the kinds of reader he sets you up as are going to match. So one minute he's asking you to imagine yourself as a kind of carping spinster and the next you're a kind of complacent gentleman in the club and the next you're a kind of reverend, you know, contemplative bloke and the next you're a young man about town so his his reader is never stable, it's just as much part of this kind of let's try on this attitude uh, He's so really, really teasing being, us really isn't he, isn't that what he's trying yeah. to do, basically Yeah, and he's asking you to think of yourself as a kind of community or society or, you know, talk shop of readers rather than a single reader coming to a judgement. Now one of the remarkable things about Thackeray, if we compare him to let's say Eliot or the Brontes or Jane Austen or any Dickens or whoever, is the fact that he illustrated all his novels. Yeah, fabulous. He didn't think he was up to much actually as an artist. He describes himself as a 20th rate draftsman, but he's better than that. They are a little bit erratic in quality. Some of them are sort of, you know, 
clearly raced off at, at the last minute to fill the page. But, but most of them are wonderfully clever. There are some brilliant quasi-allegorical ones like the little daughters of the gaunt households were sitting with, you know, reading with Damoclean swords over their heads. There are a lot of very funny, quirky initial capitals. And the best are probably the famous frontispiece of the, so it was on the part serial, the serial part um, publications when it first came out, and then on the volume publication where it's all brought together as one book. And that shows the Harlequin looking in a cracked mirror with a beautiful church landscape behind. What's interesting about him is that because he does his own illustrations, there's a perfect congruity between the text or a perfect playfulness between the text and the illustrations that you don't really get in Dickens, where one can have arguments about whether the Fizz famous cartoon versions of Dickens are limiting and, you know, ask you to see Dickens as a certain kind of caricaturist when he himself is maturing out of that kind of writing. So Dickens' last novels, he wants a much more naturalistic illustration. With Thackeray, because he's in command, he can control a very different idiom or idiot, whatever the word should be, in relation to the text. So some of them are moralistic little allegories, but others are beautiful naturalistic drawings. And the, the front piece and title page and the very last illustration showing Becky at the booth in Vanity Fair are just beautiful pieces of art. I mean, you, you could extract them and put them in, you know, etchings or engravings on the walls and they would really bear scrutiny. They're lovely pieces. But it integrates the book in an entirely different way because if you're the writer or author is also doing all the illustrations so it's seamless the communication there's no there's no rough edges to it which you don't get in a lot of other novels at that time sure you don't that's right. You get with other novels of the time. I can't think of any exceptions. Though you get the writer being interpreted for you by uh, an artist of the day, and in this case, the text is often part of the communication. So some of the illustrations will throw in a bit of extra information or a tease, or will contradict what's going on in the text. So you'll get a kind of po-faced description of what Becky's doing in the text, but you can tell from the illustration that she's bad, bad, bad. Now, Helen, what's interesting is the history of Henry Esmond, one of his books. It was really popular at the time, but it hasn't really stood the test of time or certainly hasn't really engaged the modern reader. But the books of snobs is still quite relevant in certain ways. I haven't read it. Is it any good? It is good. It's very funny. It helps enormously if you know which writers he's parodying. But even without that, you can kind of tell if you've got any familiarity with 19th century writing. There are very, very funny spoofs of sentimental novels, for example, or silver fork novels. You know, there's kind of wannabe aristocratic fictions, usually terrible in themselves. So what he does, I think, is to use the Book of Snobs just partly as fun and a, a way of ameliorating his finances, which is always necessary, but also as a kind of training in a certain kind of sharp Satiric. The qualities we were talking about before, that ability to move styles really, really quickly, needs behind it an understanding of how certain kinds of style have become ossified. So the very fact that you can move between the romantic and the inflated and the pathetic or the, you know, the kind of cod pirate novel or the rogue's life or so forth has its training there. And that's what first brings him to, to critical notice. So he's writing for Punch from the second year of its publication in 1842. And it's the book of snobs that's really getting him noticed just before Vanity fair starts to be written and published. He was very hard in Ireland. The Irish sketchbook was beyond caustic on the Irish character. Yeah, it's hard to rescue him on that. There's a very funny story from later in his life where an Irishman uh, comes across to seek him out and to give him vengeance for this. And uh, if the records are right, takes the house opposite uh, Thackeray in Kensington and sits there watching him. And as far as Thackeray is concerned, is plotting assassination and revenge. And eventually Thackeray can stand it no longer. So he just puts his head on marches across the road, introduces himself and makes his apologies. And it seems to work. Uh, he's, he's really hard to rescue. I think... 
one has to just treat it as a parody of a style, really. It's interesting at Vanity Fair, though, the, the figure people most remember as parodic Irish is Major O'Dowd's wife, Peggy O'Dowd. And he plays along for quite a lot of the scenes involving her where really what, what you're being given is the, the funniness of the Irish voice as rendered in English, ostensibly a certain kind of Irish voice. But at the point where Waterloo, the Battle of Waterloo, is happening, he, he just drops it and he suddenly treats her as a serious character who is your kind of That's moral... Inter- it's interesting how he switches character. on her, isn't it? He does. He treats her then as the good wife, you know, in contrast to Becky, who is you know, completely careless about what happens to Rort. And there is Peggy O'Dowd laying out the major's clothes, making sure it's everything he can need. You know, his food, his, his, you know, his liquids, the stuff that might get him through. Yeah, he can just leave it behind. So uh, harder to do if you're Irish, but if you can treat it as a kind of exercise in a certain kind of familiar comedy that can just be dropped when it's no longer purposeful, that's probably the best way of taking it. I mean, you remember he, he marries a young Irish woman. It's the tragedy of his life. She goes mad shortly after the birth of their third child, second surviving child and for the rest of his life she is in first a lunatic asylum in Paris, or just outside Paris and then in private care in London and it's it's a terrible, terrible tragedy for him. She outlived him though, didn't she? She was still she in, in secluded care, so to speak. Do you think that really damaged him as a person or do you think that maybe added to his bite on women? I think it lent a deep vulnerability, I think, emotionally and a kind of privacy. He's a very private man, insofar as one can tell from the letters and the records. He's, there is, oddly, given that there is so little sentimentalism about women in the novels, there seems to have been quite a lot of sentiment attached to actual women that he attached himself to, but the impression given is that he never acts on it, that he kind of admires from afar and, you know, there are sort of soft yearnings after women that might have been you know, his had life gone better. I think it's it's long overdue that we had a new biography of Thackeray. But it's interesting, Helen, if you look at his lifestyle. He was a he was a well known glutton. He stuffed his absolute face. He drank very heavily. He lived very very large, and as a result, died very young. Yet that type of greedy existence, he slated it in his books. It doesn't really add up. Sure, it doesn't. Well. It's a bit like Dickens. I mean, if you read what Dickens has been ostensibly ate at an, you know, an evening or a kind of average party, it's not credible. There was a very interesting piece in, I think, the TLS a few years ago looking at the alcohol content of the beer and wine they were drinking, which was way lower than ours. So I think I'd take some of it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, he was very clubable. He loved a good restaurant. But he's six foot three. He could put it away. And, you know, I think what kills him is it's not gourmandizing. He's not grotesque like, uh, like Joss. It's, as far as we can tell, it's something like a longstanding urinary tract infection, but you know, really guesswork at that distance. And I'm always a bit wary of that kind of retrospective diagnosis when you've not got a body in the room. True. I think we can allow him a bit of appetite. Um, <laughs> well, he certainly <laughs> had appetite for women, and that's for sure. Now, Tolstoy famously said that Vanity Fair was one of the main drivers of him writing War and Peace. Can you see the connections in that way, how, and our, for some other 19th century writers, how much Vanity Fair impacted on the style of writing that went following yeah, from it? Yeah, it's interesting. You can put the taste in between. I mean, the other famous one just before him is Stondahl, but of course Stondahl had fought in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, Thackeray's not a combatant. Tolstoy, if I remember rightly, is never a combatant as well. So he gives Tolstoy a mechanism for thinking about war and its place in the national consciousness and in you know, civic memory and the making of a nation's self-consciousness. 
process that allows one to do it from the side with a certain amount of you know, skepticism about the nation's capacity to inflate its, its view of itself through its military history. There's a very interesting story about him meeting Captain Seaborn, who's best remembered for the Seaborn model of Waterloo. He meets him at dinner at the home of the Irish novelist Charles Lever, and that's often taken as sort of germ of the idea that there is a novel to be written still about Waterloo. And what he wants to do is to take it out of the hands of the military specialists um, like Seaborn, you know, the men who were there or who can tell you exactly which battalion was placed where, you know, what moment on the 18th of June, 1815, but also out of the hands of the melodramatic and, you know, hyper-sentimental writers like Lever and, and treat it as something which is complex, messy, which involves... There is heroism, actually, in, in Vanity Fair, even though it's a novel, you know, avowedly without a hero. Captain Dobbin is quietly doing the thing that matters on the field. You don't ever see him, but you hear it reported. Yeah, but he's very dull, though, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Spoonie, isn't he? That's the that's you know, now dated word that Zachary's have used. But, you know, but that commits him to irony, as I say in the introduction to the novel. You know, this is the man who falls in love with the wrong woman. And he just finally at the point where, am I going to ruin the novel for anyone who's not read it? The point where he gets it, he realises she wasn't worth it. Beautifully written scene, I have to say, in how he comes about it and how he, he gives it to her. But can I ask you, if you look at later novels that were written, and if you look at the character of Becky Sharp and how she hoodwinks everyone and all the charm offensives, her character has endured so much through later novels if you cut, cut across even what's been written today. She's so unbelievably relevant. She's fabulous. The, I mean, the most obvious place to see her being you know, taken up as a model in Victorian writing is the sensation novel, you know, where you get these very feisty, on-the-make women um, using their wit and their beauty and their whatever social opportunities they get to make their way. But the way in which Thackeray allows you to see him as on side with her for so much of the novel. I can't think of a parallel with that, really. So it's always said that if, if somebody is engaging the comic, then the writer's on their side, but not in the way that he really uses her as a vehicle for satirising the pretensions and the, you know, the indecency and the inequalities in the society she's in. Her we- Frenchness matters as well. That, you know, that, that, again, is a sensation fiction trope that gets taken up. The idea that the French are bad and have a strain of Frenchness in oneself makes one morally risque, but she's... Yeah, she's special. Now, Helen, a lot of people have uh, criticised Vanity Fair for its ending and how it teeters out of it. Not putting any spoilers here, but the very end when he writes, which of us is happy in this world? Which of us has its desire in having it is satisfied? It's a tremendous reflection or meditation on life, really, isn't it? Because it really cuts to what the novel is all about. It does, but it's also, if you think about it, it's absolutely classical. And there is a kind of pitch for being, you know, something big and in a long line of literary historical greatness there. It's the vanitas vanitatum, you know, the old classical trope, you know, oh, weariness with the world, all is vanity, um, none of us is truly happy. And it's, you know, it's countered on the page opposite it in the final text, um, you know, the the final part publication, the final novel, you get that image of Becky still trying. (laughs) She's not giving up. The tenacity of Becky is something else. Total tenacity, yeah. You got, yeah, you got to respect it, yeah. Now, Helen, you have um, looked at also Trollope and George Eliot, and I know that you teach Dickens and a whole range of Victorian writers. If you were to select maybe five of the best Victorian novels and you were to compare it maybe to something like Elizabeth Gaskell or one of her, one of her books... Does Vanity Fair stand up as one of the best written books of the Victorian age? It absolutely stands out. You know, if I had to take five Desert Island Victorian novels, it would be there. Daniel Deronda would be another, which Dickens it is, would change on the day, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it would be up there, absolutely. And that was author, editor and teacher, 
Dr. Helen Small, Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray is published by Oxford World Classics and retails for about €10 in paperback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end this evening's programme with some smart words from British political philosopher Michael J. Sandel from his book What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, where he writes, The truly radical move is to re-examine the mechanism of exchange itself and to discover that, when it comes to markets, how matters just as much as what. Good night.
like an eye. 